Okay, friends, if you got a Bible, grab your Bible. We are in Acts chapter 9. We're going to begin reading at verse 1. There are Bibles if you need them as you come in the door. Be sure to have a copy of God's Word open and your eyes on it. It'll be helpful as we look at the Scriptures together. Today is a week in the calendar of the church that we call Pentecost. It's a day that we remember what happened in Acts chapter 2. You remember in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost, right? They, the apostles received the Holy Spirit. And they were overcome with joy. They were, they, people looked at them and said, what is going on? It looks like they're filled with new wine. And they said, no, no, no. We were just joyful because of the Holy Spirit's indwelling it in our life. Listen, we celebrate the calendar of the church at Trinity because we want the entire year to remind us of what Jesus has done for us, not just on Christmas, not just on Easter, but even the 50 days after Easter, which we celebrate today. And you'll notice that we changed from gold, the season of Easter, to red to remind us that today is Pentecost. And I also wore my robe, which I don't always do. And some of you say, thank goodness he does it. And some of you say, oh, he should wear it more. But I wear my robe on Pentecost because it reminds us that we stand in or on the shoulders of giants. We stand in history as Christians who for 2,000 years have worshiped Christ in a very distinct way. And so don't see me. I'm covered with the righteousness of Christ. That's the point of me wearing the robe. It's not because it's uh, traditional. It's because it reminds us that I'm covered in Christ's righteousness. And what you hear from me is Jesus' own words to you. The word of God is the preached word of God. And so we're going to do that right now. Remember in Acts, the whole book is about the things that Jesus Christ has done. It's called the Acts of the Apostles, but it's really the Acts of Jesus. And the question we've been looking at all spring and now into the summer is this question. When you look at the early church, this small band of people, this small group of people totally and radically changed the world. And the description of them that's constantly given in Scripture is they were filled with joy at what had happened to them. Their numbers multiplied. They were filled with joy. They had glad and generous hearts, as it says in Acts 4. They were filled with joy. When Pentecost came, people looked at the disciples and said, what is going on? They look like they're drunk. And they said, no, no, no. We're filled with joy. We're not filled with wine. So the question is for us, how do we get that as a young church in Owasso? Like, how do we get the same level of comfort and of joy in the gospel that the early church had? That's the question that we're after. And here we get the secret in Acts chapter 9. It is, is the ultimate secret of how you get joy and comfort in the gospel. Are you ready? What's the ultimate secret for how you get joy and comfort in the gospel? It's conversion. It's conversion, which is what we're going to talk about today. Listen, there are three kinds of people in this room. There are those of us who... Um, or here because of family and friends. We, we, we haven't been converted. We just come because our family wants us to be here or we're coming because of a friend. And um, that, that's great. That's great. I'm so glad you're here. You should keep coming. We love that you're here. But, you know, as you look at the Bible and you see a man named Paul who has this incredible sense of contentment, like he says that no matter what happens, no matter if I get knocked down, I, I've already been knocked down, I stand. He has this amazing, he's the one who said, I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. 
Wouldn't you want that? And what about those of us who are here that are converted? Why aren't you living the life like the Apostle Paul? It's because you've forgotten your conversion. You've forgotten what it looked like. You forgot what you got when you became a Christian, when Christ opened your heart like he did Lydia's in Acts 16, cracked open your heart so that you could give heed to the word. You forgot what it was like, and Paul shows us something of that in this chapter. Or there are some of you here who think you're converted, but you're not. You think you are, but you're not. Listen, what are the signs of true conversion? That's what we're going to look at today. When you read the Apostle Paul's testimony, some of us, if you're like me, read it, and there's a problem, there's a tension, because you see the Apostle Paul, this incredible, incredibly zealous man who is broken at the road to Damascus and understands the gospel for the first time. And he tells this testimony, and you're just like, this is awesome. And, you know, there's like lightning, and there's Jesus' voice, and there's all this stuff going on. And then I think about my own testimony, which is pretty blah compared to that. Listen, what you learn in this text is that God can melt the hardest hearts by his sovereign grace and for his sovereign purpose. And there is beauty in the most blah testimony and there is beauty in the most radical because you know what? They're all radical as we're gonna see. If you have your Bibles, look at Acts chapter nine. We'll begin reading at verse one. We'll go down through verse nine then we'll skip over to verse 17. This is God's word. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, that is, Christians, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now in verse 17. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, would you take your word? And since you're such a good shepherd and you're such a good physician of our souls, would you go to work on us? Would you remind us that our self-saving strategies don't make us one step closer to you. It's only your righteousness for us. And Father, I pray that you will melt our hearts even now. In Jesus' name, amen. What do you learn from this text about conversion? Number one, you learn about conversion, that conversion is for every one of us. 
Listen, the Apostle Paul, right, was before he was the Apostle Paul, he was Saul. The, Saul was a murderer who became a missionary named St. Paul. He was a wolf who became a lamb. He was a murderer who became the missionary. He was like the early church Gestapo who became the proclaimer to the Gentiles. Paul was extremely zealous and religious. Listen, you think you're moral. You think you're religious. The Apostle Paul, together with the Pharisees, created 633 laws for the Old Testament. They combed with a fine tooth the entire Torah, and they came up with 633 laws. And you know what Paul says about those 633 laws in Philippians chapter 3? As to the law, I was blameless. He kept every one of those laws. He kept every one of them. And some of us think, well, you know, I'm a pretty good moral person, and I really don't need the cross. I really don't need Jesus. I mean, I, I'm pretty... Listen... The Saul, 633, spotless, he needed Jesus. How much more do you? Conversion is for everyone. There is no exception. Whether you grew up in the church and you find yourself to, to be on this hamster wheel of like the evangelical subculture trying to continue to make God love you by the songs you listen to or the books you read. Listen, those can all become a kind of works righteousness that wear you down they become like your 633 laws. It is only in the gospel, the free gift of Christ for you, his righteousness for sinners, that you're able to be truly converted. Number one, conversion is for everyone. Why? Because God can melt the hardest hearts by his sovereign grace for his sovereign purpose. That's the point of Acts chapter 9. God can melt the hardest hearts by his sovereign grace for his sovereign purpose. Conversion is for us all. People say today, sometimes to me, hey, you know, I what's really important, especially when they hear that I'm a church planter, you know, that's great and all, you know, that's great. But what's really important is that you really have faith in what you believe in. Like, you really believe it. It really doesn't matter what. Listen, that is stupid. Hitler believed what he placed his faith in. Saul believed what he placed his faith in. He had faith. And it killed him, and it was killing those around him. Listen, it's like if you were to go, if you were to go on Grand Lake and you were to get in a boat, right? And the boat has just got like, it's shot through with holes in it. And you get in that boat and you say, despite the water coming up to your ankles, I believe it's going to make it. I believe it's going to make it. I believe it's going to make it. I've got faith. And then you get a guy who gets in a boat that is sealed on the bottom, right? And he gets in the boat and he's scared and he goes, I don't know if it's going to make it. I don't know if it's going to make it. I don't know. One of them dies. And it ain't the guy that had a lot of faith. It doesn't matter how much faith you have, friends. It's the object of your faith that counts. Do you know what I mean? Paul says to the moral and religious people, truly I say to you, turn and become like a little child or you will never inherit the kingdom of heaven. Listen, Paul, Saul needed to be converted. How about you? Number two, conversion engages the mind. 
Conversion involves an intellectual assent to some facts that are true in history. Listen, Paul was shocked rationally. He was shocked. And, you know, you see, you read this episode, right? He was knocked off his horse on the way to Damascus, which is about 135 miles north of Jerusalem. And he sees this blinding light, and he hears this voice say to him in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And you know what's amazing about this? Like, this is not the only place that Luke writes about Saul's testimony. He writes about it two other times. In Luke 22, I mean, in Acts 22 and in Acts 26. Because Paul is constantly going back to his testimony as he preaches later. And he says, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Like, did that really happen? You know, or was it just like an epileptic seizure? And there were men that were with him who say to Paul, Paul, it happened. Paul would have no other choice but to assume that this just wasn't just some vision he had because he was dehydrated. This really happened, friends. There were men that were with him that were able to confirm it. You know, when you look at the text, if you read Acts 22 and you read Acts chapter 9 and you read Acts 26, they're, they're slightly different in the way they tell the story. You know, Acts chapter 9, it says that the men who were traveling with him stood speechless. They hearing a voice, but they saw no one. In Acts 22, it says that they saw the light, but they couldn't understand the voice. What's going on here? I mean, Luke gets his story from Paul. Paul is telling Luke his testimony, and Luke was probably there when he preached the later sermons, and so that's where Luke gets the information that he writes about in Acts chapter 9. And Paul is struggling over the rationality of his conversion. And he tells it three different ways because it's all true. None of them contradict each other. And the men who were there are saying, yes, I couldn't understand the voice. One says, well, I, I didn't hear it. And the other one is like, I, I just, I, I couldn't see because of the light. Paul very carefully reflects upon what happened. He didn't want to believe it. And the men around him saw it too. And some of us say, well, you know, like I live in Owasso and it's full of people that go to church. And I would drink the Kool-Aid too if I could have something like that happen to me. Like if I was knocked out, you know, if I was knocked out of my car and I lived and, and, you know, and Jesus said, look, brother, you need to go to Trinity. You need to hear the gospel, right? You would believe it, wouldn't you? No, you wouldn't. The same evidence Paul has is the same evidence we have. His evidence wasn't overwhelming and ours isn't underwhelming. Because notice, Judas was with Jesus, right, for his entire ministry, and Judas did not want to believe. Or you remember the rich man and Lazarus. Remember Luke 16. And the rich man says to Lazarus, Lazarus, you know, Abraham, send Lazarus to touch my tongue with water. And Abraham says, I'm sorry, there's a chasm that's too wide for us to breach. He says, well, then go tell my five brothers. Send Lazarus to my five brothers. And Abraham, what's he say to the rich man? He says, listen, if they don't listen to the prophets, they won't listen to Lazarus either. There's a difference between wanting to believe and allowing yourself to be persuaded. There's a difference between hardening your heart and actually, not just turning off your mind, what I'm asking you to do is turn it on. Christianity asks you not to turn your brain off, but actually to turn it on. Conversion involves a change of your mind. Even though Saul didn't want to believe it, 
He was overwhelmed with the historical facts. And this was written, of course, probably only 20 or 30 years after Jesus' resurrection. And people who are reading this would have surely stood up and said, hey, whoa, 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 this is not true. Because there were 500 of us who saw this really happen. But they didn't say that because they saw it was true. Conversion involves a changing of the mind. It is not just easy believism. Third, Christian conversion involves a new spiritual awareness, or it involves the changing of a heart. The minute Jesus appears, Saul is utterly blinded. He's blinded. He can't see for three days, and he goes into Damascus. The acid test of whether you're a Christian or not is if you have new eyes to see yourself. That's really the acid test. In Acts 26, Paul adds this little line. Luke adds this little line as Paul preaches, and it's that Jesus says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Why do you kick against the goads, is what it says, literally. And Paul knew that he was kicking against the goads. And now he has a new kind of spiritual side of how he understands how for years he was kicking against Jesus. He was, disob- he was, he was, not, he was just totally shell-shocked with what had happened to him. It involves a new kind of spiritual test. Every Christian, every one of us can look back on our lives and we can see that we were fools before Jesus because we didn't see it. You didn't see things about God and about man and about sin. And the way that you know that you were a Christian is that you can admit that you were once blind, but now, as the song says, an amazing grace, now I see. John Piper wrote a poem a couple years ago that I think is really helpful, and it's about Paul struggling over his conversion, and it's written between a persecutor and Paul himself. The tables are turned, and the persecutor says, you were a flame, a Pharisee. Paul says, I was, without flaw. Then blameless, perfect in purity, yes, Paul says, in the law. Did you consent to Stephen's death? More than consent, approved. And did you hear his final breath? I did, unmoved. But yet the last apostle, Paul, not the last, but the least, co-inheritor of all, yes, and co-deceased. For whom then all this sin, this pain, Paul says, for you, like me, depraved, the persecutor. And what my benefit, my gain, Paul says, forever saved. From Pharisee to freedman then, yes, 2,000 years apart. The hope of all the worst of men, Paul says, only because of his patient heart. Paul says back in 1 Timothy chapter 15, this is a trustworthy saying deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example for those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Listen, it involves a change of sight. Has this happened to you? Conversion is for everyone. Conversion involves a change of your mind. It involves a new spiritual sight. Fourthly, Christian conversion is always the result of a process. 
It's always the result of a process. Like, what do you mean, Pastor Blake, a process? Listen, kiddos, when you hear the story about Paul getting knocked off of his horse and believing in Jesus, it sounds like it happened just like that, doesn't it? And outwardly, we may be confronted with Jesus and we may respond almost immediately in faith, but do you know what? The process began long, long before that. Because as I said in Acts 26, when Paul retells his story, he says, Jesus says to Paul, stop kicking against the goads. What are goads? Goads are those long spears that shepherds would use to be able to keep the sheep on the path. They would guard them before they walked off a cliff. It's a long, it's a long sharp sword, and they would literally goad them to keep them going straight. Paul knew that Jesus had been goading him for years, and Paul was kicking against him. I don't want to be corrected. I don't, where would Paul have kicked against the goads? Think back at Stephen. Listen, Paul is not just agreeing with those who are killing Stephen. Paul is giving permission to him. He's saying, go for it. Kill him. Why? Because slowly but surely, these 633 laws in Saul's life were beginning to do what the law does to us. In Romans chapter 7, it says, I would not have known I shall not covet unless the law said you shall not covet. The law, friends, one of the purposes of the law is to reveal our sin. And so here Paul writing in, Acts chapter, in, in Romans chapter 7 later writes about himself as Saul, right? Seeing the law and seeing that he can't measure up to it. Even though he thought he was blameless, slowly but surely his self-righteousness is getting pecked away and pecked away. And then when he sees Stephen, this man full of joy and comfort and faith, are you with me? Stephen is, has this amazing speech before the Sanhedrin, before the powers of the known world. And it so inflames Paul's sense of self-righteousness that Paul doesn't just say, oh, let the Johnny come lately, just go on his way. Paul says, kill him. Kill him. Why? Because Saul knew that Stephen had something that he didn't have. He knew that Stephen had a joy and a comfort, even amidst his death, where he could say, do not hold this sin against them. Listen, let's apply this to our life. Some of you have been kicking against the goads for a long time. Now, many of us know each other. I know many of your stories. And I, some, of us have been kick, some of us have been kicking against the goads for a long time. You think you're a Christian, but friend, you're not. I don't know that to be a fact. Jesus himself does, but maybe you're not. Because you're constantly telling Jesus, no, 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 I don't, get back. Because what you are is not converted you haven't experienced conversion. You've experienced what, what we could call adhesion. That is that you haven't had a total change of course, which is what metanoe, repentance, means. You haven't just turned and gone the other direction. All you've done is turn just a little bit. You're still going the same way you've always gone, but you've added something to it. I had a realtor this week. I was having lunch with him, and a realtor said to me, I do real estate in town and he knew I was a pastor and, and we started talking about the gospel and, and he said, you know, it's interesting. Um, the first thing somebody told me when I moved into Owasso is that if you want to be a realtor, you better join a church. And so here this brother was who knew he needed to join a church. He wasn't interested in conversion. He wanted to add on like Sunday 
spiritual yoga but without all the cool moves. You sing some songs and you kind of do your thing, right? He wanted to add an exercise to his life so that in the lobby, as soon as the guy would stop preaching, I could pass out my business cards and get on my way. He was using the church to get the same kind of lifestyle he would use if he lived in Morocco. Do you do that? There are thousands of us in town who do, who are in the church, who think we've been converted, but what we've done is just add something on top. And is it any wonder why you're so exhausted? Listen, you need to be converted. Conversion, not adhesion, is what you're after. And it's what Jesus wants to do in you. Are you with me? Conversion is for everyone. It involves a change of mind. It involves a new spiritual sight. It involves a change of heart. Fourthly, conversion is always a result of a process. Listen, let me, before I go on, let me say something to the Christians here for a minute. What, what really converted Saul? So it may have been he, get, he was getting knocked off his horse, but remember it says in Acts 26 that he was kicking against the goads, right? What converted Saul was probably seeing Stephen. You know what's amazing about Stephen? You know what's so encouraging to me about him? Um, Stephen's ministry only had one convert. But it changed the world. In Hebrews 10, there's a story where the Christians have been put in prison. And the writer of Hebrews says, that you, do, you, in the former days, you've endured a hard trial for your faith. Some of you have been persecuted and mistreated. And some of you have left your property to be plundered for the sake of the church. Some of you and I and my children and your children may one day have to face death for the sake of Jesus. I'm not trying to be melodramatic. I'm just being honest. It's going to come not with a sword but with a lot of paper cuts. You can be asked to give to the church but it's not going to be tax deductible anymore. We won't be able to meet in the school anymore. It could be a thousand different things that cut the church down. Stephen only had one convert, but he changed the world. And he stood fast, and he gave his life for it. And it completely and utterly changed history. Now, fifth, fifth sign of conversion, it engages your network. It changes your network of individuals with whom you fellowship. Listen, some of us in this church, some of us are like Paul. We are like, we are, we are like coconuts. You know, the other day my kids wanted to have a coconut, and so Lauren went to Sam's and she got a coconut for us. And you've ever, have you ever tried to crack open a coconut in your house? <laughs> like, I got the sharpest, like, you know, tool I had in my kitchen, which is this huge, you know, butcher's knife. And I, yeah! And the thing didn't even scratch it. It was like I was trying to cut cement with a butter knife. It was unbelievable. And so I said, well, I need to sharpen it. So I went and sharpened it right. You know, I did the thing, right, the tool you never use that's in your butcher block. So I sharpened it, right? And then I go and I go, I, you know, I broke all my Boy Scout totem chip rules. I'm like, yeah, trying to cut this thing. Nothing, right? It's like trying to cut a piece of granite. 
So I go out to my garage, and what do I do? I get my DeWalt 18-volt drill. And I get the largest bit I've got, which some of you I know. For me, it's not that big, but it was big for me. So I get the biggest bit I've got, and I go and I take this sucker, and I go in there, and I, and finally I pierce through it. And by the time that the, the, the coconut episode is finished, right, Lauren had gone out, and when she came back, she knew something happened because there was like coconut shrapnel everywhere in the kitchen. Some of you are like coconuts. Man, you are hard on the outside. You've lived rough lives. But inside, oh man, you are milky and sweet. And then some of you are like peaches. You're like peaches. Oh, well, you are juicy and tender on the outside, but man, your pit will break a tooth. The church is a place where coconuts and peaches get together. You're not going to remember anything else in this sermon, but you'll remember this. Well, you got a hard outer shell or you got a really hard pit. Listen, you're both hard. I was a peach, man. I came to Jesus pretty tenderly because the Lord worked on me for a long time through my family and then through stuff, bad decisions I'd made in junior high. I was pretty tender to the gospel. It didn't take a lot for me to believe. It really didn't. But man, there are some of you, you went, you went down with a fight. You were a coconut. Both of us are hard. And some of us tell stories like Bob Marley's story, right? He, he was a Rastafarian. He worshiped the Ethiopian princess that's what rastafarianism is and he came to know jesus this incredible incredible reggae leader of the known world came to know jesus at his deathbed he went down hard or bob dylan you know bob dylan became a christian in the 70s right and he went down hard in fact he went down so hard that john lennon wrote a song to make fun of Bob Dylan for becoming a Christian. Or Martin Luther. Remember Martin Luther, he went down hard. Remember he was coming home from law school and he got stuck in a hailstorm and he was freaking out because he was scared of the lightning. He ducked under a tree and he cried out as his good Catholic you know, sentiment might do. And he said to St. Anne, who was the queen of the thunderstorms, he said, St. Anne, if you get me out of here, I'll do anything. I'll be a monk. And the clouds cleared, and he kept his promise. And he was converted in the midst of a thunderstorm. Really, he was converted later when he was reading Romans chapter 1, and he read that the righteousness of God has been revealed from faith to faith. And Luther realized for the first time in his life that this is a kind of righteousness that I add to God. I don't do deeds of righteousness to get God to love me. It is God's righteousness that has been given to me that makes me worthy because it's Christ's merit that's been accrued on my behalf. And he fell hard, so hard, that he changed everything about him. And he wrote 95 sentences called the 95 Theses, and it shattered the, the known Western world. Or John Wesley, who was reading about Luther's conversion, he was reading the preface to the Romans. And it says of John Wesley, 200 years after Martin Luther, while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith, John says, I felt my heart strangely warmed and I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation. And an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the sin, from the law of sin and of death. Brian Phillips Welch, 
He was the lead guitarist for the heavy metal band Corn. He fell hard. Remember his story? He goes home and he lays out a line of meth and he takes a $100 bill and he smokes it and he looks up in the sky and he says, Jesus, if you're real, please get me out of this. And he tells a story. I am second. You can go to the website, listen to his story. He tells a story where he felt this incredible sense of fatherly affection come over him and he, he had no idea how to explain it except that a friend had invited him to church. He heard about the gospel there and it made a connection. Listen, he fell hard. But God had been working on Brian Phillips Welch for years in the midst of the sex and the drug culture of the heavy metal industry. Or some of your stories are beautiful. Some of you grew up in the church and at the very earliest of ages, you heard the gospel from your mom or your dad or from a preacher and you accepted Jesus. He opened your heart like he did Lydia's and he helped you give heed to the word. There's no partiality with God. Both of those are hard stories. One's a coconut, one's a peach. Or like Cornelius. Cornelius was a very righteous dude. He was a centurion. You're going to read about him in a couple weeks in Acts chapter 10. Cornelius was struggling morally. He wanted to be right, and he knew that salvation could be found in no one else but Jesus. And he even called Paul or Peter to come preach to him. He just teed himself up. He was a peach. And he came to know the gospel. Listen, there's no partiality with God. We tell stories around here. We want to tell all of them, a lot of them. Because whether you're a coconut or you're a peach, the story is that God can melt the hardest hearts. Coconuts and peaches are both hard. By a sovereign grace for a sovereign purpose. Paul took Uh, the Lord took Paul, a coconut, and he made him the leader of the Gentile missionaries and he changed the world. And he changed his network of people that he hung out with because immediately he leads him into the church, a place with coconuts and peaches where they come together and they make an incredibly beautiful recipe called the glory of God. It says in verse 19 that Paul immediately went and Ananias found him. He was baptized and he spent three days with his disciples. There were three years with his disciples, sometime with the disciples in Damascus for some days. We know later that that was three years. Paul changed. He didn't hang out with the He didn't go back. I mean, he hung out with a new group of people. He needed to be discipled. He needed to be shaped with the gospel. Listen, has your network changed? Now, I don't mean like, do you not, I don't want you to not hang out with your old friends. What I'm saying is, are you able now to hang out with people that used to drive you crazy? The peaches and the coconuts. That's what the church is. This is a place, this is a room, this is a place where people who otherwise have nothing in common in Christ have everything in common and share everything together. That's why this church needs to be planted in this city. It's not because we have cool PowerPoint slides or because the preacher wears a robe or we do the Lord's Supper. It's because we want to be a church where people who have otherwise nothing in common can come here to have a picture of what heaven is going to be like when the Lord brings new Jerusalem to earth and renews earth. And we operate together with our brothers and sisters across time and space and culture as one body, diverse, under whom Christ is the head. Won't that be awesome? Man, it would be great. The motivation for us in planting a church is because we know that our neighbors need community worse than they could ever imagine because we need it. That's why it's important to keep coming to worship even when you don't feel like it. And even when you've had hard Saturday nights. 
Now lastly, you're not going to remember what I've said because there's too many points, but you will remember the coconuts and the peaches. That's worth it. And you will remember that God came out the hardest hearts by his sovereign grace for his sovereign purpose. But I've given you five reasons so far, the signs of conversion. Number one, conversions are for us all. Number two, it engages the mind. Number three, it engages the heart. Number four, it's always the result of a process. Number five, it engages our network. Our friends change. We're able to associate with people who otherwise would have driven us crazy because now we see how broken we are. Number six, conversion Christian conversion only comes by accepting the gospel. Here's the gospel. The gospel is not add on a little church on Sunday and you'll have a happy life. That will kill you. It'll drive you crazy because it will exalt you, exhaust you. Here's the gospel. That you are far more broken than you could ever imagine. But in Jesus Christ, you're also far more loved and accepted than you can ever dream at the very same time. You hear that all the time around here. And we make no apologies for that because that is the heart of the gospel. That at the same time, you see yourself far more broken but also far more loved at the same time. Paul, if you read through his epistles, goes on to describe himself and he always trumps the way he described himself previously. I was an apostle. Didn't deserve to be an apostle. I was an apostle. I was the least. I was a sinner. I was the least of sinners. I was the worst. Are you growing more self-awareness? Are you growing more with a greater sense of God's love for you? You can. You can. This is why Ananias could say to his brother Paul, listen, you're a brother. Do you think it was hard for Ananias to go to the one who murders Christians and say to him, Brother Saul, what happened to him? Ananias was changed. He networked with people that were beyond his network. He believed the gospel that he was at the same time more broken than he could ever dream, but also more loved and accepted than he could ever dare hope. And it gave him an incredible confidence. Do you have that kind of confidence? Confidence does not come by reading another Maxwell book. Does it come from learning in more rules on how to be a better leader? Confidence comes from understanding who you are. And it's only in the gospel where you can be self-aware of your brokenness and also self-aware of how you are accepted. There are religions that will tell you you're loved, you're loved, you're loved, but you look in the mirror and you know that you've been sinful. You know that you don't measure up. And there are religions that will tell you, you know, you just don't measure up. Just work yourself out of it. Listen, both of those will get you to hell. It is when you recognize both at the same time. You are more broken than you can dream, but you're also more loved than you could ever dare hope. That's the gospel. Do you believe it? My friends who are seeking, who've been pierced to the heart today, do you believe that? And Christians, are you living the life like the Apostle Paul? Are you bold? Like, are you confident like Paul? Well, it might be because you've forgotten your conversion. You've forgotten your true love. And like Paul, he had help. He had Ananias. And later he had Barnabas and he had the disciples. Maybe this week the best thing you can do, the most helpful thing you can do spiritually is to sit down and reflect upon your own conversion and share it with your spouse. Share it with your sister or your brother. Share it with your husband or your wife. Share it with a friend. Tell your story. 
Stephen told his. He only had one convert. But Saul, who became the Apostle Paul, changed the world. You can live with the spiritual sight that you are far worse than you can imagine, but far more loved than you can ever believe. Not great. Let's remember that as we come to the table this morning. And let's pray together. Father, I pray for those here in this room who are not converted. Oh, Father, that you would help them to see Paul and believe. His contentment, the amazing sense of confidence he had in Christ, the incredible transformation in his life. And Father, I pray for those of us who are converted that you would help us to remember our conversion and help us see what we have in Christ. Father, for those of us who aren't sure, I pray that you will show them Saul and in Saul's story, help them to see themselves. Help them to kick against the goads no longer. Thank you, Jesus, that you can melt the hardest heart by your sovereign grace for your sovereign purpose. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.